The following podcast may contain adult language and conversations revolving around situations not suitable for immature audiences. Spoilers and general political incorrectness can often be expected, so listener discretion is advised. They must be destroyed on sight! And not drinking. I'm actually just drinking some water right now. So, Are you? yeah, yeah. I don't really have any beer in the house. I kind of drank everything last night. I've got. I mean, I I don't have zero beer in the house, but I only have like big like imperial stouts and stuff. And I'm like, I'm not drinking that right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've got no beer left either. All I've got is uh, two bottles of Lafroy to choice choose from. Mm, so <laughs> that's. I do have some whiskey. I could do some whiskey, but I'm. I'm okay without alcohol right now. I, again, it's one of those like one you've been drinking all day. Sometimes you're just like, you know, yeah, I just, you know, yeah, I know. You know, I, to, <laughs> I, I, I don't need it. I, I'm good. You know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I had one of those days the other day. There, I I visited uh, my best friend. He moved back to the valley, so uh, I was up his up at his place, and we got pretty uh, lit up. So, uh, awesome. Yeah, anyway, uh, we are now live. We're back again. I got uh, one of my co-hosts with me, at least, and it's been a little while. They Must Be Destroyed on Sight, a movie podcast. We're back, and it's me, Lee Russell, your charming, endearing host, and my charming and awesomely endearing co-host, Daniel Harper, is finally back with us. So how you doing, Daniel? I'm doing fine. I don't know if I, I... I mean, I feel like you're kind of coming on to me just a little bit, you know, with the, uh, you know... Calling me charming and and very endearing, I think something like that. But uh, oh well, I'm not complaining. I mean, it is it is Pride Day here in uh, California. So, you know. <laughs> there you go. Uh, we're good. No no problems. Thema- uh, thematically, we're good. Tonally, we're good. Yeah. Um, emotionally, excellent. All right. <laughs> yeah, we're back, and we're actually finally getting back to our uh, sex comedy series, which is awesome. We've only got a couple episodes left to do, and I think we have two pretty interesting films this time around, and I think just by sheer coincidence, they actually kind of fit each other thematically in certain ways as well. It was just sort of by lucky happenstance. I didn't plan it at all, so... Um, uh, yeah, no, I, I think there... It, it was interesting watching them back-to-back and kind of going, you know, there are some, you know, beyond just the fact that they are, look, titties, you know, there, mm-hmm. is a, uh, there, is, there are a couple of running themes going here, and I think it will be interesting to kind of talk about them uh, in comparison to one another. But before we get to that, uh, I'm going to go to one comment we had from the last episode it did, uh, intermission number four, I guess it was. Had a comment from our other co-host, Paul. He said, Invaders from Mars and The Fly were remakes. The Thing was actually classified as a sequel by John Carpenter, and I actually disputed him on this because I think he just had bad information there because from everything I've ever seen, John Carpenter said his thing was strictly a remake. He says he doesn't care for remakes as a whole. I would if they would only sparsely do them and do them well. But the last 15 years has been shit storm barrage hailing down from corporate mountains, cascading in bung ball hail and smashing holes into the integrity of the film industry as a whole. But he says, continue with my intermission episodes, apparently. So, <laughs> uh, I only mentioned this comment because, um, like, I responded to him on the actual YouTube page where he posted a comment. But I just wanted to mention it because of uh, the Thing reference. 
I'm going to be doing something here soon. I'm writing up a uh, blog post that is going to be uh, posted on Slaughter Film. Uh, our friends at Slaughter Film, uh, Corey Carr and Forrest Taylor, uh, they do something called, I guess it's Summer Film School, something along those lines, where uh, they talk about documentaries about movies uh, and generally horror movies. Uh, so I'm going to be writing up a blog post about the documentary that comes on my version of the Thing DVD, Terror Takes Shape, John Carpenter's The Thing. So look forward to that. I'll, I'll be posting links and stuff and pimping it once I finally do write it and it gets posted. Uh, it will be posted sometime in July. That's when they're doing the uh, film school summer or summer film school, however they uh, word it. And, yeah, it was very nice of them to uh, ask me. They just, uh, out of the blue, Corey Carr asked me if I wanted to uh, be included in it. Uh, you, they Usually they just did it themselves, but I think they're trying to get more uh, bloggers and stuff into this. Uh, so very, very cool. I look forward to doing it. And um, hopefully once I do uh, write it and post it, uh, people can go read it. And hopefully they'll enjoy it and also enjoy the other ones uh, that uh, the guys from Slaughter Film have done. So that will be really, really cool. Yeah, no, that's awesome. Um, on the on the topic of remakes, obviously most film fans, I think, uh, you know, would say just go revisit the original film instead of trying to remake something. That remakes are typically made out of uh, a desire for some, you know, commercial title recognition, you know, some Q factor that they're, you know, that they're chasing the buzz on. Uh, I do think that there is a place for uh, remakes of bad, you know, movies that were not really effective the first time. Mm-hmm. Um, I think uh, one of the great kind of remakes of the last you know twenty years would be um, Ocean's Eleven, where I think the original kind of just didn't age well. It just wasn't, but but I think the uh, uh, Soderbergh version um, with Clooney and Pitt and all the others was was actually a superior version of that story. So uh, and, you know they can be done and they can be done well, but you know it's certainly not something that you know where we see this, especially in horror. I think you know they're just, they're just constantly remaking these films just because there's some name recognition out there that they want to, you know, try to pull in, you know, a few million dollars in box office receipts. Yeah. Uh, um, I think that would actually be a good uh, future show for us to do maybe even sometime in the summer while we're in between sort of themes and stuff, maybe to uh, come up with a list of remakes we really like and maybe ones that we thought were really super garbage, <laughs> like really bad. I remember back when, I Am Legend came out, the Will Smith I Am Legend, uh, uh, that uh, the AV Club did a long piece essentially uh, comparing all, you know, all, what is it, four or five versions of that film, something like that? One, two... Uh, there's only... There's tech... I guess there's technically four, because I think yeah. the uh, Asylum made one before I Am Legend came out to the theaters because they have a habit of doing that, right? They make real right. cheap, quick-to-video cash-ins on big blockbusters, so... Right, yeah, um, yeah, but they, they did a kind of a long piece that compared, you know, a bunch of the different versions, and including um, talking about the original Richard Matheson novel, um, mm-hmm. which I thought was, it was a very well-written uh, piece, so you can definitely go uh, Google that um, if you're uh, so inclined. But, uh, you know... it. I think it is possible to remake something, but I think that really you have to have an original idea and you just have to like push it mm-hmm. um, in a new direction or, or have some reason to kind of bring it to new audiences, you know, or kind of mo- more modern audiences. I think that it's, um, you know, there's really very rarely like a creative decision to remake something. It's usually a, yeah, a lot of, consideration. Yeah. A lot of times they just either end up dumbing it down or they do something like the Gus von uh, um psycho remake. It was shot for shot and it was, I don't know, just kind of pointless and almost soulless, in my opinion. But 
Yeah, no, I, I would agree. I mean, the Gus Van Sant, uh, I mean, but that was a clearly like an artistic decision. That was mm-hmm. Gus Van Sant deciding, I want to do this and see what, it, I mean, it's it's almost like a film school experiment. You know, it, it yeah. feels like something that, and then once it's been done, it proves that it should never be done again. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, it is, like, I mean, it does have a, a, a purpose in that sense. Like, yes, you can actually recreate a film yeah. virtually shot for shot. And uh, yeah, it, um, you know, you've you've uh, you're playing all the notes, but sometimes you 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 lose the music. You know, I think is the metaphor. Mm-hmm. I think the only thing that had I don't think the the only thing that film had was um, the implied masturbation was no longer implied from Norman Bates, and you got to see uh, Aunt Anne Hache's butthole, and that was I think that was the only major differences. I mean, that's that's a uh, that's reason enough right there, right? <laughs> I mean, it's it's that kind of night, guys. All right. Yeah, yeah. Um, all right, so uh, we're not going to do Movie God uh, this time around uh, just because Daniel's had a long day and I've had a long day and we're just sort of bereft of ideas at this point. <laughs> I, we could always make one up. I mean, it's, it's a fun game, but I think we also just have enough else to talk about tonight to mm-hmm. not have to uh, to push ourselves to that. Um, yeah. You know, but, uh, you know. But I do want uh, listeners to participate and throw Movie Gods at us. Um for the most part, if if you guys do send in comments and you give us topics for Movie God, and again, if you're not familiar with what Movie God is, uh, you pick two things: two actors, two movies, two scripts, two composers, two soundtracks, two of something movie related. We have to eliminate one of them, and it helps if they're really great things that you know we're going to have trouble trying to eliminate one of them. And then we have to think through what effect that would have on movie history. So if you want to send in your ideas, I realize that um, if you send in those comments, I'll end up pre-reading them. So I probably won't answer myself, but I will throw them out to Daniel and Paul. You can um, also uh, like tweet me or private message me on Twitter or something like that. And I could give them to, you know, if you don't want Lee to know them beforehand, because it is best if it's sort of a surprise. But yeah. uh, certainly uh, you can at Daniel Lee Harper if you want to tweet at me or whatever. And, and we'll... You know, if I do get some messages from people, I'd be happy to uh, make sure Lee doesn't know about it before the uh, before the actual. Uh, actual Actually, that's a, yeah, that's a great idea. If you, if you have ideas for Movie God and you want to tweet, if you go to our Podbean page, uh, and you'll get all the information for that stuff at the end here of the of the podcast. But if you want to go to our Podbean page, we have our links for our Twitters. So, like, if you had an idea for Movie God suggestions, you could. Just use our Twitter links privately, uh, send one to uh, Daniel, one to me, and we could just throw them at each other, you know. Uh, so that would work really well if someone wants to uh, endeavor to uh, take that upon themselves. Yeah, uh, and at this point, given the level of feedback on our podcast, I'm pretty sure if you give us one, we'll use it. Like that's- Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, uh, we, we will use anything anyone sends. Any comments we will read and respond to. I mean, we definitely want more. Uh, listener interaction uh, when we really appreciate the level of listener interaction we've gotten so far. So uh, very, very cool. But I think we can move on now to uh, basically what we've been watching as of late. And I'll start with Dan because I know he has a few things he can bring up. Um, So we'll just go with you. Yeah, I've got at least, uh, I've got two, one of which, uh, which I would uh, highly recommend to anyone who hasn't seen it yet. Uh, And it's absolutely worth seeing on the big screen which is Mad Max Fury Road, which Mm -hmm. uh, I actually saw twice instead of seeing Avengers Age of Ultron. So if that tells you anything at all about uh, about how much uh, my wife and I just adore that movie, um, 
I was thinking the last time I've seen like a uh, this kind of instant critical conversation around a film like this, you know, this kind of big event picture that nonetheless had this really um, thoughtful, intelligent back and forth dialogue was probably Inglorious Bastards was the last time I saw like, you know, voluminous uh, criticism just produced um, almost instantly. Around few, and far, few and far in between, isn't it? Yeah. It is. And uh, so I, I absolutely think that, you know, just as, just as a moment in film history when people are really talking really thoughtfully about a big event picture that's actually in theaters. Um, it's absolutely worth seeing um, if you haven't seen it. Uh, the one big piece of uh, cool news that I've heard about uh, the, the you know, kind of upcoming DVD Blu-ray is that uh, George Miller is talking about doing a black and white version with an optional score only uh, option to, oh. uh, to include on the uh, Blu-ray. He said he actually like did a lot of the dailies and a lot of the kind of early rushes and early mm-hmm. editing within black and white. He believes that's the purest version of the film mm-hmm. and he wants to make that available to, uh, to fans of it. So uh, I'm really hoping that feature exists and um, that would actually be something. I don't buy a lot of Blu-rays. I usually just buy DVDs. So I'm going to buy a film. That would be something worth bringing for the Blu-ray for because I think that would that be cool. Would be yeah. Amazing to see in black and white. So just wanted to bring that up. If you haven't seen that, absolutely see it. Uh, the other thing that I saw, which uh, Lee is probably going to uh, chastise me and never let me on this podcast again, um, is so if you had asked me two weeks ago, Daniel, what do you think of The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly? I would say, oh, it's a great film. I saw it when I was a teenager, you know, yada, yada. You know, I haven't seen it in a long time. I believe I have never seen The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly until last week. Because I saw the good, the bad, and the ugly on the big screen at the mm-hmm. Alamo, because it was playing, and I'm like, I have to go. That's a great film. It's amazing. I think I've actually seen the two previous films in the series, but I don't think I ever actually saw the good, the bad, and the ugly because I'm like, I do not remember this at all. <laughs> um, and you know, there's stuff in that film that is, you know, like it's such a rich thematic text. Yeah. Um, it was the uh, kind of full extended edition, the uh, nearly three hours long version. Mm-hmm. Um, really, really brilliant uh, film, kind of about violence and the in the way that we use violence and set on the backdrop of the um, Civil, uh, War. Civil War. And just a, a real masterpiece. I still think the, uh, that Once Upon a Time in the West is my favorite Leone film. Same here, yeah. Um, but I, I truly uh, would have believed that I had seen that film, and I, I don't believe I actually had. So a recommendation, if you haven't seen The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, <laughs> or maybe if you believe you've seen it, maybe you should go see it anyway. Um, yeah. <laughs> and um, seeing it on the, uh, on the big screen was uh, absolutely the way to, to, to see that film for the first time, which I didn't believe I was doing when I sat down for it. So, um, you know, I, I, sorry to uh, sorry to uh, put out the controversial opinion that The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly is a masterpiece or anything, but yeah, that's yeah. how we play it on this podcast. Is, uh, <laughs> really going out there and going against the grain of, uh, you know, film criticism. Yeah, you, you elitist. Uh, <laughs> fucking, um, I, could, I could see how you would have thought you might have watched it. Like, if it's something that you know, if you if you haven't watched some of those uh, Leone westerns in like ten or fifteen years or something like that, you just kind of think back to them. Fistful of dollars, and for a few dollars more, they're fairly similar to Good and Bad, the Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. Uh, in a, in the sense that Leone worked out basically all of his stuff from the first two movies and kind of perfected them in the Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, and then he went on to make the fucking magnum opus afterwards. Right. Um, 
And I can see where the confusion would lie because, I mean, in for a few dollars more, you've got Lee Van Cleef, you got Clint Eastwood, so you, you've got you've got those two characters uh, already in the back of your mind, burned into your brain, and you just, and you just think to yourself, yeah, you see them in the good, the bad, the ugly, and like promo shots and trailers. Yeah, I've seen this, of course. Um, I think I, it's more like it's sort of one of those things that grow, growing up, they were always on like TBS and TNT and that sort of thing. And just kind of like it's to me, like in my memory, they're not like separated as three films. It's just kind of like, oh, yeah, I've seen I've seen those films, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, uh, it was it was definitely a, a weird experience to be like because I brought Shana. Um, Shana didn't it was I was going to bring another friend of mine who had to cancel at the last minute, but I already bought two tickets in. Shana's not a Clint Eastwood fan, and mm-hmm. um, you know my, my wife, excuse me, you know who is usually right there with me on any kind of uh, yeah, let's go see classic movies sort of thing. But she was a not the biggest fan of westerns, and b not a Clint Eastwood fan, and so it was definitely she was like, I'll take one for the team and come with you, um, <laughs> and and see this with you. And I'm like, thanks, I appreciate it. Uh, and she enjoyed the film as well. I mean, she was like, I, I get it, I but it's also. Wow, that's three hours long, and um, I think mm. she sees films like that the way I see um, kind of uh, Broadway musicals, where I'm just kind of like, yeah, I get it. They're singing, they're dancing, you know, it all kind of sounds the same. And unless you're unless you're tuned into that same frequency, it does kind of start to feel, like, all yeah. right, I'm, I'm done with this, you know. Um, not that I have anything against Broadway musicals or people that enjoy them, but she will sit and sing uh, Broadway musicals. Uh, she owns the soundtracks and will sing the soundtracks just in the car driving places um, for hours. And to well, me, it all sounds like very, very the same all the time. Well, does she, uh, does she like the King and I, I'm not sure. Actually, I, I'm sure she does. I, I know it, that um, if she does next time, she just take her to a magnificent seven or something like that. So you get yeah. the Yul Brynner effect, you know? Yeah, no, I, I think, uh, I, you know, honestly, I think that it opened her eyes to uh, Westerns a little bit, you know, um, just, you know, because it is that kind of, uh, commentary on the western genre and it's a kind of late period spaghetti western i think she uh appreciates that a lot more i i mean and honestly i i know that we kind of call westerns a genre western is it was such a big pervasive thing that you know existed for so long and was hugely popular for so long that it's to me it's not a genre it's a set of interconnected genres and so um, there's a there's a big difference. Even just uh, John Ford's early films versus mm-hmm. his late films are very very different from one another. And you know Leone's his own genre in and of himself. And you know when you get to like uh, what Preston Sturges, you know, and the stuff yeah. that he was doing in the 50s and 60s. You know, uh, Peck and Paws. I mean, you know, it's it's uh, it's hard to um, kind of class all those as one thing that you can either like or dislike. Honestly, you know, it's, it's yeah. they're very different stylistically things. So um, anyway. I kind of have uh, determined that I need to sit down and watch more westerns. I think that's, that's uh, yeah. something that I need to do more. Well, of. that won't be a problem for you because, of course, in a few months, probably sometime this fall, we're going to be getting into a spaghetti western series. So, oh my uh, god, really? Yeah. Wow, <laughs> that sounds amazing. I mean, I think our listeners should should definitely be on the lookout for that. I mean, that's mm-hmm. the sort of thing. I I just I'm shocked, shocked. I, I don't I don't know if that works at all, but that was doing the joke. Yeah, but uh, yeah, we will be doing uh, a sort of a spaghetti western series at some point. It's something I have to plan out a bit, and I have to pick and choose the films that I that I want to put into it. But uh, we will be sort of exploring that as a genre, and we'll probably be talking about the differences between that and other Western subgenres, I guess. So uh, we'll we'll have plenty of time to work that sort of shit out and. 
And you can probably uh, semi-indoctrinate your wife into more Westerns, you know, because you'll be yeah. watching so many of them. <laughs> yeah. She's certainly, uh, she's certainly just at this point, I've seen so many of the uh, the titty movies from the 80s. It's sort of like when she sees me watching one, she's just kind of like, oh, for the podcast? I'm like, yeah, yeah. You know, it's just a, you know. Um, and she, she's completely, like, she has no, I mean, my wife is one of the coolest people in the world. You know, I, I love my wife dearly. She is uh, amazing and wonderful and all those things. Uh, but it was definitely one of those, uh, I hate to, to kind of say the gender thing, like, you know, oh, my wife doesn't like Westerns because that's such a stereotype. But, I mean, mm-hmm. legitimately, she just doesn't care for Westerns, you know. Yeah, so, you know. that's fair. All right, um, anything else you've seen? Um, I'm sure there's stuff I'm forgetting, but those are the two that I really wanted to, uh, to pull out and talk about. It has been like a month since we've recorded, so yeah. <laughs> I'm sure um, I've seen lots of stuff that I've just uh, completely forgotten at this point. Yeah. Uh, I have been keeping uh, the listeners up to date on some of the stuff I've been watching in the intermission uh, episodes, but um, one cool uh, movie I just, just watched actually just last night on Netflix was uh, Nightcrawler with uh, Jake Gyllenhaal. I need to watch it again, but I really enjoyed it. Jake Gyllenhaal plays one of the creepiest, amoral social paths I've seen in movies in quite some time. I really enjoyed his performance. I'm, I'm not even I'm not even sure if they did like some sort of weird makeup job on him or something, but he just looked different. He looked more slimy. I don't know. It was it was it was probably the best performance I've seen from him, and I just I was like, wow, I really hate this guy. Yeah. <laughs> No, uh, Jake Gyllenhaal is uh, probably underrated uh, as an actor by a lot of people. I think, you know, it's sort of every time he gives a really good performance, people kind of say, oh, it's kind of a, a one-off, you know. Oh, yeah, well, you know, he was good in that, sure. But he's also kind of done that several times over the last, um, you know, dozen years or so. Um, I'm most thinking about Zodiac from, uh, I think, I was mm-hmm. um, where he gives a really nuanced, subtle performance. Um, yeah, no, I, I, I think... I, both he and his sister are both uh, really great performers, and uh, mm-hmm. I would uh, like to see this film at some point. I think uh, I yeah, saw it advertised, and I'm like, oh, that, that looks interesting. So Yeah, it's uh, streaming on Netflix right now. I encourage everyone to watch it. It's really good. Um, I, I, I dare say this is probably his best performance. He, he, I mean, in Zodiac, he played a sort of a obsessive character, you know. Uh, he, he does sort of the same here, but it's, like, totally different. Like, he's just... You're you're not gonna like him <laughs> when you watch. He's just so good at being such a scumbag that, uh, and it's a it's a really good movie. It's it really is. I really enjoyed it. I'm gonna have to watch it a couple more times just to fully take it all in. But uh, yeah, Nightcrawler. Look for it on Netflix. So I will. Yeah, ladies and gentlemen, the whole zoo is breaking loose. Okay, so I guess we can. Um, Move on to the movies we're going to be doing today. The first one we're going to be doing is The Immoral Mr. Tease. I will let you start off with this, Daniel, because this was your pick. So, Yeah, um, so I, so The Immoral Mr. Tease is Russ Meyer's first film. His first kind of, I guess, successful film. Russ Meyer, uh, known, I'm sure the audience has at least heard the name. He's uh, very well known for... Uh, Having been a filmmaker who is uh, very interested in uh, pendulous breasts, mm-hmm. um, he spent uh, most of his career uh, making uh, booby pictures. Yeah, uh, he made some real classics in the in the in the genre. And uh, I remembered, you know, when we were talking about doing this uh, kind of sex comedy series, I really wanted to embrace the breadth of the genre a little bit and kind of say, oh, let's look at. You know some stuff from not just do a bunch of the '80s schlock, which is uh, which is great. I, I love doing the '80s schlock, but 
to also kind of step out of that a little bit and kind of say, where did this come from? And you yeah. know, that sort of thing. And I remembered this title from, I saw, I think, an E! True Hollywood story or something of Russ Meyer <laughs> way back in the day, you know, like, you know, probably 15 years ago at this point or 10 years ago. And I, I always remembered this, uh, this film and I'd never seen it. And when we were, you know, kind of goofing off on, on Netflix or on uh, YouTube looking at some of these 80s films, the title popped up, and I thought I, we should watch this for the podcast because it's Russ Meyer's first film. Mm-hmm. Um, not really having any kind of context for what the film was, just saying, like, it's historically important, and we should absolutely cover it for this. And um, so the uh, premise is uh, ostensibly that a, uh, the way that it was often described is that uh, this man, during a routine a dental examination, is hit by x-rays and gains x-ray vision. And so he sees women with their clothes off. Um, whereas I think watching the film, it's really that a man is uh, fantasizing. You know, it's sort of a, a secret life of Walter Mitty um, with mm. uh, softcore pornography as the, uh, <laughs> you know, as the instead of car chases uh, essentially. So, you know, you can you can describe it however you like. I don't know the, the the kind of version that most people talk about is is I don't think really an accurate representation of the film. No, I I didn't get that. I, I was watching like I actually read a synopsis before I watched it, and I was like, "Where's the X-ray vision? I don't see that. I see a guy with a really detailed fantasy life." Right, <laughs> but yeah, I don't no, see- um, so, so structurally, I'll just kind of talk about this film. Um, there's mm-hmm. no sound recorded. I mean, it's it's um. It's kind of an interesting, like, historical artifact because, you know, it's from 1959. You can watch this on YouTube for free. I'm sure it's out of copyright mm-hmm. I mean, for many years. So you can watch this whole film. It's shot without sound, which I'm sure, you know, was just a budgetary constraint. Yeah. And so there's these basically silent movie quality sequences of, of sort of this very broad comedy interspersed with um, beautiful ladies disrobing. And then over the top, they've kind of uh, interspersed this very dry, factual, sort of 1950s documentary-style descriptions of kind of what's going on. And sometimes this very modernistic take on, like, sort of this wry commentary, because at one point there are the three ladies in the rowboat um, (laughs) naked, and I believe the dialogue on top of it says something about, like, the amount of tonnage ro- uh, produced by uh, the American shipping industry is 42 billion tons a year, or something like that. Like they're yeah. doing these very, um, and, and it's and it's uh, it, you know it feels very modern at times like that, while obviously being this very kind of of its time piece because there really is no overarching plot to this except mm-hmm. you know this guy um, you know fantasizes about these ladies um, and has uh, what are really very tame. Uh, yeah. sexual fantasies. I thought an interesting film, and, and obviously historically important. Uh, what did you What did you feel watching this, Lee? Uh, well, 1959. So you're right. Uh, very tame now by our standards, but I believe this was the first film that was like dubbed pornography that sort of made it over into the mainstream uh, cinema. It's oh. it's kind of one of those. Uh, I mean, historically speaking, it, it is kind of one of those points at which you can kind of see where the modern you know, where this kind of modern uh, film comes from. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's worth talking about um, in, in kind of preparation for this. I did do some research on the Hayes Code, the pre-Hayes Code films, and then kind of uh, because this is, a, is sort of a response to that, and one of the things that eventually led to the Hayes Code being um, abolished and the modern MPAA being established. Yeah, The Hayes Code, for those who don't know, was in the early 30s. See, before about 1930, 
there really wasn't any regulation about what you could show on cinemas. And so you can see some of these old films from the teens and the 20s. And, you know, you there was actually, I mean, there's a hardcore pornography out there. Yeah. Uh, but there's also just a lot of, you know, um, kind of nudity. You know, it's, it's pretty tame by today's standards. But, I mean, there's certainly, like, there are just comedies that have a lot of nudity in them from, yeah. you know, like 1925 or whatever. So a bunch of moral busybodies got together. They did the Hayes Code, um, which was sort of this quasi-legal, it was sort of an organizational thing. It was basically the theater chains getting together and, like, banning certain practices that they wouldn't yeah. show in their, their theaters. And um, it was kind of state by state. I mean, this was kind of the first, like, big kind of federal level, you know, in the United States sort of thing. And they kind of clamped down on stuff. And they not only clamped down on things like nudity, but they clamped down on certain kinds of material you couldn't show. Um, the Wikipedia article about this, I was reading it before we we, read, we uh, sat down to record. Uh, I'm not going to read from that, but it has a, it's a really good summary. But things like you couldn't do um, material about adultery, for instance, like that yeah. was like it's to it's a taboo subject um, from about 1934 to you know kind of the early 50s um, when you started to see you know filmmakers kind of push against those boundaries again. Um, you really didn't do a lot of that kind of stuff. It was very taboo. What the, the real importance of Russ Meyer is that. A, he's not making hardcore pornography, which never really went away. In conversation, um, I know Russ Meyer largely because I'm I'm a big Roger Ebert fan, mm-hmm. and so I have read a lot of stuff that Roger Ebert wrote about Russ Meyer because they were close friends for for many many years um, until Russ Meyer died. He at one point Roger Ebert asked Russ Meyer, "So why do you why didn't why didn't you make hardcore like why you know why do you do the the, the girly films like these?" And uh, Russell Meyer said, well, there are two reasons. One is that the hardcore industry was controlled by the mob when I started making films. Hmm. And you had to be connected to the mob in order to make hardcore, um, or they come and break your legs. And uh, two, uh, Russ Meyer personally just had no interest in anything that happened below the waist. Um, he was very much a tip man. And that's yeah, he was a boom he, man, yeah. That's all he wanted in his films. He just he loved he loved big tits, and he could not lie. That's just the, uh, the reality. <laughs> um, and, it, and it definitely shows in his films, and, and particularly in this film. Mm-hmm. So, so that's kind of the historical background. Um, so you did see um, in, the, in the 50s, in the 40s and 50s, you could see kind of uh, – nudity in films, but it was always in kind of a documentary format. Yeah. So like the, the nudist films, the naturist yeah. films, I mean, basically you would take a camera to these nudist camps. You would film them ostensibly as a like, Oh look, nudity. And you know, like, like, let's, let's learn about this culture. But really it was just an excuse to get some, some naked asses on the screen. Largely. I mean, I, I kind of see the uh, later on in, in the cable, you know, kind of era, the, the real sex series. Um, if you remember that, if you grew up with that, the yeah. way I did, um, you know, where, yeah, it does have an educational purpose, but it's kind of also there just to be spank material, you know, um, <laughs> and, uh, some of those, some of those definitely hewed that line closer than others, you know, but Moral Mr. Cheese is one of the first of the films that actually was not a kind of documentary, even though I think it draws a lot of, from that kind of mindset in mm-hmm. the way that it's shot and the way that it's filmed. I mean, there are kind of long sequences that, basically do have kind of a documentary. These are just women walking around in the forest kind of attitude. So it's ostensibly not a documentary, but it's also had nudity of this kind that was in violation of the Hays Code. So um, this kind of historically important film, even though I think you watch it today and there's not, I mean, there's just not much to it. So anyway, I feel like I've been talking forever. So um, that's the, that's the historical background. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, yeah, I get you know, like, People watching it today, 
they'll they'll look at it and think it's pretty tame, and they'll be like, okay, whatever, you know. I've seen tits and everything these days, but it's actually pretty smartly written. Like it looks like one of those those nudist films, but the stuff the narrator's talking about comes off as one of those, um, I guess government-made or school board-made educational films that they'd always play for you. Like, they even played them for me back in the 80s. We were sort of the last era for those sort of things. And we were getting ones from the 60s and 70s. Uh, this is sort of those those government-made, school-made, wherever it came from, uh, educational films, like talking about how to, you know, from everything from um, sex ed to how to cross the street, talk respectful to your parents and stuff like that, you know? Just, just you know, that kind of bullshit for kids. So, one of my favorites of those is the uh, one that's made fun of in an episode of Mystery Science Theater 3000, which is all about the wonder of springs. And how important the springs are in our day-to-day lives. <laughs> and so during the course of this educational film, the uh, film imagines that, you know, the kind of the main character is going around the day and then springs disappear from his life. <laughs> so, like his watch doesn't work. And then like, and eventually he's like tearing out his hair. I mean, springs, springs, I must have them. Uh, anyway, that uh, neither here nor there. But yeah, and, it, and it's funny because like, when they put the dialogue and you put it counterpart to what you're actually seeing on the screen, you realize that the dialogue is actually like double entendres and smartly written little jokes. I mean, you're not necessarily laugh out loud, funny jokes, but there's some sly little bit of humor going on in there. I think that elevates the film well beyond what it it is just at face value, which is (coughs) basically the same skit over and over again of Mr. T's fantasizing about a woman being nude because he's looking down her ample cleavage and then in the second half of the movie he gets to see her nude via his daydreams right but like that is essentially the movie he he just he he goes out and gets his uh tooth pulled and has some daydreams about women uh then he goes and sees the psychiatrist has some more daydreams about women and eventually sees the psychiatrist nude at the end of the film and (laughs) that's about it (laughs) yeah no uh, uh interestingly i mean i I kept. I was watching this, and I kept comparing it in my mind to Busty Cops, which um, mm-hmm. we did in a previous episode. And um, ironically, uh, a much better film, just as a film, than the. Oh, I yeah. mean, it actually has kind of an idea and a plot behind it, even though it, it really is just functionally very similar. It exists to show you lots of nudity and to do it in a, a fairly tame way, but uh, I think uh, much more entertaining. Uh, oh yeah, it's, it's actually one I, I didn't. I won't say I sat and watched the whole thing all the way through and it's only like an hour and 12 yeah. minutes long or something like that. 60... I watched it in two or three chunks. I mean, you know, I, but it, it was definitely kind of an entertaining, like it was interesting enough to kind of keep me engaged. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, worth, worth watching. I think it's, 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 it's fun. I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's not going to change your life, but it, it's, it's worth seeing if you're interested in kind of the history of like where this came from. Um, it's yeah. absolutely, you know, kind of Okay. You know, like this is what it is. And and if you're a Meyer completist, then you definitely need to see it. Um, And I think the neat thing is you can sort of watch this and you can sort of see uh, where certain other movies afterwards sort of took off from these sort Mm -hmm. of ideas. Like the whole this this movie sort of made the nudie cutie genre, which you know started more you know more fictional movies about nudist camps and stuff like that and things of that nature and women running around, men imagining women with their clothes off. I think there's probably direct connection somewhere to the carry on films in the sixties and seventies mm-hmm. to some extent. Um, and then Benny Hill, I think 
owes a lot oh, to Russell yeah, Meyer. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. I mean, uh, you could even, I mean, Playboy had started a few years before this, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, in fact, as we were uh, kind of, as we were, I, I want to put researching in air quotes here, but, uh, <laughs> you know, um, before we started recording, we were researching a bit about this film and uh, doing some Google image searches, and uh, one of the actresses in the film had actually appeared in Playboy, um, mm-hmm. although... And she became uh, more famous kind of after this film. She was actually in an uncredited role. Um, so it's worth kind of going to the IMDb page and uh, checking out some of the people in this film, none of whom did anything of any importance except for uh, I've actually uh, got her up here. So Was it um, Jill Wilkinson or something? June Wilkinson. June yeah. Wilkinson, um, who is, if you do a Google image search for her, is uh, stunningly gorgeous. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh you know, definitely one of those va va voom girls. Uh, yeah. I say that with with uh, all all respect, honestly. Um, and you don't see anything but her torso in a window in the film. Yeah, no, that yeah. that's it. So uh, you know, good times. Uh, yeah. You know, there's not much else to say about this film. I don't think, um, except uh, it, I, I enjoyed watching it. I, I don't know that I would sit down and rewatch it again, but uh, you know, a certain kind of party I could see throwing it on. You know? Yeah, I mean, it's it's. It's something you probably should watch if you have any interest in these sort of films at all. I believe it's also on a bunch of the kind of, uh, you know, multi-pack DVD sets when I was Googling, you know, this film. Mm-hmm. It kind of popped up a bunch over and over again. Um, so uh, probably easy to get your hands on even if you don't want to. I mean, if you do want to own it, it's probably easy to do. Yeah, to, but there's to, um, I, I can say that for certain that the print on YouTube that is currently on there is pretty much as good as it is. I don't think it's ever been really restored or anything. Yeah. And it looks it looks pretty good. It's a 1959 film, and you can see everything clearly. It's a low-budget film from 1959 that mm-hmm. no one has ever restored. I mean, the, the fact that it even still exists is sort of a testament, I think, to its, uh, to its enduring historical legacy. Um, yeah. I can imagine um, this is one of those films that uh, you know Hugh Hefner would have played at the at the mansion in the seventies. Probably, sort of thing, you know. <laughs> anyway, yeah. all right. So I, I think we both uh, give a little recommendation to that one. Uh, give it, give it a shot. It's sixty three minutes of your life. I mean, yeah. There, are, there are worse ways to spend the sixty three minutes. You know. Yeah, you could, you could watch Busty Cops again. <laughs> you could. No one should ever watch Busty Cops again. My God. Yeah. I still feel bad about that one. That was awful. You know. Oh no, it was worth it was worth seeing once, maybe. Um, maybe. Certainly don't <laughs> certainly don't watch Busty Cops too. Like, you know, don't uh, move on from the Busty Cops franchise and you know, anyway. Uh yeah. ready to move on, I think. Yeah. Uh, we'll move on to the next one. Uh, this is my pick uh, for this episode. And it is The Party Animal from nineteen eighty four, directed by David Bayard, I think. It's Bayard or Beard, one or the other. I don't know how he's pronouncing it. And also, I think there was another director before him on this, Harvey Hart, and I think he was. I think uh, Mr. Uh, Baird, I'll go with Baird, uh, replaced him. Interestingly enough, I, I real I remember talking to you a little while ago, and you're saying you watched My Chauffeur. Um, I actually watched like the first half of that. I haven't finished it yet, but because um, mm-hmm. it's kind of one of those like streaming, and it just kind of all right, you know. And I never just yeah. kind of got back to it. Uh, My Chauffeur. A lot of the same production team was behind mm-hmm. that one. Um, I think I might uh, talk about that one a little bit in, a, in just a future episode once I've had time to finish it. But um, a lot of the same actors, or at least some of the same actors, and a lot of the same kind of uh, aesthetic uh, going on in in My Chauffeur. A more, I think, as we get to talk about the Party Animal, I think My Chauffeur is a more um, traditional film. It's got a lot more of a kind of a through line in terms of a story um, than the Party Animal. But um, yeah. I might be getting ahead of us ourselves a little bit there. So uh, please continue. 
Uh, also written by uh, David Baird, starring Matthew Causey as Pondo Sinatra. That's quite the name. Which is, um, wow, what a name, yes. Yeah, Timothy Carhart as Studley. Actually, another quite the name for uh, this film. Uh, Jerry Jones as Elbow, and Jerry Jones is actually fairly notable as he was in, um, I think he had something to do with the production, and he also starred in some of the uh, Dolomite movies, uh, black exploitation yeah. movies with Rudy Ray Moore. And the rest of the uh, cast really doesn't matter, and you'll probably find out why once we talk about the film here quite a bit. But uh, Matthew uh, Causey is Pondo Sinatra. He's actually uh, an assistant professor at Georgia Institute of Technology and a guest lecturer at the Drama and Trinity College in Dublin. Uh, I, I found that out when I was doing the kind of background research on this. And uh, honestly, it does not surprise me a bit because I think if there's one thing to really take away from this film, it's that, you know, uh, Kazi throws himself into the role and mm-hmm. is a very talented actor. I mean, almost to the detriment of the film. I mean, he's <laughs> almost a... And, and, I, and I'll get into that here in a, here in a minute because I think mm-hmm. that, like, he's so willing to throw himself into these various scenarios that we run across during the, the film because structurally the party animal kind of, you know, it has this kind of overarching narrative of this uh, kind of yokel from Alabama mm-hmm. who uh, shows up to college and he can't get no pussy. Exactly. And, uh, you know, which I, I say in that way just because that's pretty much the way it's described in the film. Yeah. <laughs> So you come to old Elbow for some advice, huh? Yes, sir. You ain't getting no pussy, is she? No, sir. Why you think we call pussy pussy? Well, I don't know, sir. Cause it's furry? No. Cause it's warm. Cause it scratch when it gets angry. No. Well, what then? Now it don't purr. And it don't meow. Then why do we call it pussy? I don't know, sir. Cause that old hound dog wanna eat it up. You got to be the hound dog. You've got to let that pussy know you the hound dog. Put it in your mind. Be it in your body. Hound dog's gonna eat that pussy. You hear you say that, boy? Hound dog is gonna eat that pussy. No, no, no. Hound dog's gonna eat that pussy. Hound dog is gonna eat that pussy. Hound dog. Hound dog. One more. Hound dog's gonna eat that pussy. Uh, despite the fact that, I mean, logically, this guy has gorgeous women like agreeing to go on dates with mm-hmm. him, and he he just can never seal the deal. I mean, it's sort of one yeah. of those like there, there's this really weird kind of subtext going on. I'm not sure quite. There's there's a very weird reading of this film that you could you could get into where like he's he's uh, self sabotaging, um, and I, I'm not sure quite how deep I want to get into that. But so he can't get no pussy. So it's essentially the first two-thirds of the film are kind of the series of vignettes in which he puts on different kind of roles in order to to attract women. 
and you see this this actor really transforming himself over and over again in very convincing ways from this kind of Pondo character to the various different versions. So you get him kind of uh, cross-dressing and, you know, doing the, the strip poker thing. You see him uh, as the kind of Quasimodo type character um, uh, who has been transformed by the uh, the punk rock crowd, yeah. uh, which is insane. Anyway, um, <laughs> you see him uh, in the in the drug fueled um, uh, haze. Uh, you see him kind of putting on these different roles, even wearing like out and out like Napoleon complex costumes yeah. during certain sequences. And I, you know, watching it, I sort of started to to think because this is a fairly short film. I think it's like eighty minutes or something like that. Seventy three minutes, I believe so, it is. And uh, I started to start. I started to think like there's just material that just is left on the cutting room floor or never got shot. Like there's a little bit of connective tissue that isn't quite you know established in the film, mm-hmm. um, which I don't think hurts the film necessarily because it still kind of delivers what it's what it's meaning to deliver. Mm-hmm. Um, but it definitely feels disjointed at times. Yeah. Um, um, but but Kazi's performance is amazing. I mean, I, I totally believe that he is a a full blown professor of, of of acting and drama because he's he's actually really amazing in the film. But you don't really believe that all these different characters he's inhabiting are Pondo. You believe that there's an actor who's just you know showing off how good an actor he is, which is fine. But it's certainly um, it kind of takes you out of the the film to some degree just because yeah. you know, if Pondo was this good at. Uh, aping these different characters, he he would not have the. I mean, again, he wouldn't have the issues he has. You know, mm. like he would be a much more skillful manipulator of people if he was yeah. just looking to. If he was willing to manipulate women in order to get them to sleep with him, he he would be much more effective at doing so without having to go through these crazy schemes. Yeah, I don't even get the impression that he'd have that much trouble if he was even just being himself because he's not. I mean, he, he's not the best looking guy or nothing, and I mean, he's supposed to be like twenty six in this. The, they, um, they're, but the gravestone at the end. Sorry, it's more where he dies at the end. Yeah, um, he the, he's twenty three when he dies, but they say he's twenty six at the beginning. So they, yeah. they the details are, I don't know. Maybe it's meant to be like the unreliable narrator of the framing device. Uh, who knows? Well, you know? that, that's the thing. They sort of. Um... It's it's obvious that there was production problems with this film. It's it like you said, it's very disjointed. It's very uh, episodic between the vignettes. It looks like a lot was left on the floor. It looks like they shoehorned in this sort of pseudo almost vh1 documentary kind of thing on the mm-hmm. sort of bookend uh the film to try to explain the plot to some degree to the people <laughs> because if you just watch this thing straight through it's like okay what the hell's going on because uh, a lot of the scenes the vignettes they just sort of end okay like uh there's the one where he dresses up as a girl to get into the sorority to play strip poker with all the beautiful women just basically aerobicizing in their underwear uh as they do um, which is which is just something that happens, right? Like, I mean, that's mm-hmm. just what beautiful women do all the time. They just aerobicize in their underwear. And by the way, this this Ivy League college, I want to go to this college because <laughs> I think ninety nine point nine 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 percent of the women in it are all fucking supermodel gorgeous. Like, yeah. also uh, from from our again kind of leading ahead from our from our zapped conversation, I, I mentioned that for some reason this uh, little seventeen year old kid has full access to a chemistry lab. And apparently Pondo just gets access to the chemistry lab at one point in, uh, you know, horrifying safety uh, violations. Just, you know. <laughs> yeah, I was going to bring up the chemistry and ask you and your thoughts on that. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll get to that in a minute, I think. But, uh, yeah. you know. Uh, but, yeah, anyway, he, like, 
this character of Pondo, he come he literally comes off the turnip truck. I mean, they 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 slap you in the face with that one right away. It's like, yeah, yeah he's literally off the turnip truck. Um, and his his friend that he makes at school is the actual sort of like ladies' man of the college, mm-hmm. but he's actually presented as a, like a really nice guy. Like he's not presented as some sleazy douchebag. He he's actually presented as like a respectful caring thoughtful dude who's trying to help him out and and you never get like a sense of like why these two are friends it's like it's one of those kind of elements where it's just like what what is what do these two guys see in each other because pondo is like it's just he's such a nice guy to pondo although like when pondo like shoots one of his girlfriends it's just kind of like whoops sorry (laughs) um which I've I've got to think that's like they're trying to go for like black comedy in some of this, mm. and they're trying to go for like a this very heightened reality on this, you know. But they they don't have the follow through. I mean, it. it um, I keep kind of coming back. It it sort of feels almost like a student film. I mean, it doesn't feel like a kind of. It feels some like something that's very experimental. That like people were just playing around with different ideas and turned it and called it a movie more so than like. There's there was like a script and a you know like it feels kind of very experimental and yeah. I'm gonna get to that. There's one sequence in particular I think that we absolutely have to talk about in terms of that. Yeah, I don't know whether it's because of the production problems themselves or if it was intentional, but it comes off as a and this is where I sort of see the connection to uh, Immoral Mr. T's where it seems like the entire movie is much more uh, a fantasy. It's much more sort of a daydream fantasy kind of thing. Like um, like the instance where he shoots his friend's girlfriend, like it's not supposed to be taken like something that literally happened or something that's serious. There's no real consequences to any sort of uh, physical damage to people. Like when, when Pondo gets his punk rock makeover and gets uh, basically a, a lynch mob after him, uh, Quasimodo style, he goes back normal right after that. The different women that he uses his little date rape spray on. <laughs> yeah, yeah. well, d- date rape spray at, at best. You know, that's yeah. the that's the finalized good version of it. You know, yeah. um, that 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 causes like horrible mutagenic effects uh, to to uh, ladies. I mean, it, it's it's clearly meant to exist in this very heightened universe. It's clearly meant to be sort of a, a fantasy version of what could happen. Um, no one's really taking it all that seriously. Um, and it's such a kind of, I mean, I, I think I kind of might have a, a bad reputation on this podcast for kind of bringing up things like, like the fact that there is a lot of rape in these films and there's a lot of, you know, kind of, <laughs> I mean, you know, I, I understand that like no one making this film was like meaning to kind of have it, you know, was meaning to write this guy as a, uh, a sleazy douchebag necessarily, but I do think it's worth, you know, kind of talking mm-hmm. about as we talk about these films. But, you know, it's, it's hard, you know, because when we talked about, like, The Van, for instance, and it's yeah. a very, like, overt rape sequence where, and the lead character kind of just does it and doesn't, like, nobody really cares all that much. Um, <laughs> whereas, you know, but that's meant to take place in something resembling reality, whereas this is so clearly kind of a a frustrated sexual fantasy. Yeah. It's very clearly, like, what's going on in Pondo's head. As yeah. you can't get laid, almost so like it. Like if you view it on that level, Pondo is what Pondo tells himself about the world around him, and his fantasies about what he would like to be able to do if he could. Hmm. Um, it's still kind of a disturbing. I mean, it actually becomes more disturbing because then it becomes this kind of 
troglodyte who is uh, unable. <laughs> I, I'm from Alabama, so I can I can make fun of you know kind of some of the stereotypes. <laughs> but you know, you you get this kind of uh, ignorant cultural character, you know, who is fantasizing about being able to uh, destroy people's lives effectively um, mm-hmm. in, order get, in order to get laid. Um, so if you view it on that level, it, it actually becomes a very very dark film. But um, I don't think that the, the filmmakers kind of intended it to to be that way. I do think it's it's intended to be kind of more dark comedy. Um, but they don't really have the follow through to really pull it off. Um, it's yeah. a really fascinating film in a lot of ways. Uh, it, it's pretty obvious that it's not supposed to be taken serious. Like there's stereotypes abounding in this one. I mean, there's there's the scene where, and it, it's a typical '80s gag you see in a lot of films. Like you see it everything from everything like weird science to Animal House, where it's like the white guy walks into the room full of black people and does every possible offensive oh, thing he can. Right, write. right, right. <laughs> I had um, I had to blot that from my memory momentarily. Yeah. Thanks, Lee. I appreciate yeah. that. <laughs> I, I think. We can move on to the uh, well. First off, I'll just say uh, kudos for the Cyrano the Bergerac uh, scene. The little uh, little and, nod to that, and the year before uh, Roxanne, for that matter, mm-hmm. which I thought was uh, you know, which uh, I, I I actually love Roxanne, the Steve Martin film, um, yep. and uh, this actually predates that by I think a year or two. So um, you know, kudos to the to the filmmakers. Yeah. Uh, we'll move, <laughs> I, w- I want to move on to uh, to the. Uh, sex shop scene because I think if any of the filmmakers are still alive, they should be looking to sue Kevin Smith at some point because this felt just like clerks. I mean, I, so just to set this in context, I'm sitting, I'm watching it. I actually had to, uh, to search quite a hard for this film because the, the link you sent me didn't work in in the US. Yeah, no. So I did have to kind of track it down. So I'm, I'm watching the film and uh, kind of idly, you know, I was kind of eating lunch and, you know, that sort of thing. And then suddenly, Pondo walks into a sex shop. You're seeing the eyes through the uh, black and white surveillance camera. Mm-hmm. And then you get this kind of long conversation between the two porn store employees uh, about uh, nuclear uh, nuclear destruction and, and uh, mutually assured destruction using dildos as their... Uh, and. It is, I mean, it definitely feels like it is lifted straight out of Clerks, and it's hard to. I don't know. I someone needs to ask Kevin Smith if he had ever seen the party, the party animal before uh, making Clerks, because I mean, I don't, I don't know that like you know, it's sort of one of those like Kevin Smith deserves to get sued for you know ten million dollars or something. But <laughs> I, I do think that it's a. Uh, it's so clearly an antecedent to the aesthetic of Clerks that I mean, it, it was fascinating just to see it there, and it's it's a really good scene, honestly. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's probably the best you know scene in the is. movie. Um, very effective at what it does, and it deserves. I mean, it's like wow, somebody should have made that film. Like that's a much more interesting film than the kind of overarching structure that we're really getting in the rest of the film. Um, and then Kevin Smith went on and made that film and built a career out of it. So you know, you see, wonder like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm I'm tempted to try to see if I can find like if someone isolated that scene on YouTube somewhere, just so I can tweet it to Kevin Smith and ask him like, what's going on? <laughs> Have you, did yeah, you ever no. see this? <laughs> yeah, that, it's it's amazing. I I you know I kind of run into this when we watch a lot of these films where it's such clearly uh, made to be kind of a cheap money generating thing, you know and. As long as it, you know, it's kind of like horror film, you know, kind of cheapy horror films. As long as they deliver the goods, nobody really cares what's going on otherwise, and so you can kind of do really interesting things 
as long as you deliver the goods. So I do feel like it is sort of like, okay, so we've got this, you know, we've got enough tits in the movie that distributors will buy it. And so we can kind of do what we want in the rest of the film. And it sort of has that, that feeling. Um, but I do kind of wish that, you know, somebody would go interview some of these filmmakers and, and make documentaries or at least, you know, mm-hmm. interviews with some of these people. Like what was, what was going through your head when you're making this? You know, um, I would love to see like a series of like commentaries on some of this, you know, yeah. like, like, you know, what, what, what actually was going on in this scene? What do you, like, where did this come from? Uh, because all we can really do is speculate. I mean, she even, this is a film that's largely been forgotten by, mm-hmm. by I think culture. I don't think that, that people remember it. Um, I certainly have never seen it or, or heard of it before you mentioned it. So, but yeah, uh, I mean, this movie actually takes like half an hour before there's even any female nudity. Like there's this, uh, it, it starts out with more like bare male flesh than anything yeah, else. You, you, you have that extended sequence in the Chippendales club kind of thing, which I, again, is kind of one of those moments where is this meant to be like, so, the titular audience for this film, you know, like the the way that they sell it is, oh, there's going to be female nudity on screen. A bunch of horny teenage boys buy tickets, and then suddenly, what we're going to shove schlong in your face <laughs> in the first, you know, fifteen minutes. Is this intentional? Like, is this like, are you are you trying to make some kind of point to the audience about like what yeah. they've come to see, or is this just completely? Like, there's no other reason for this to be in the film. Like, unless it's supposed to be like Pondo, like the way I interpreted it is Pondo is like trying to figure out what women want mm-hmm. in a in a mate, and so he goes to this Chippendales dance, and so he's watching it. But like, there's so little connective tissue that it's. I mean, it's it's almost like an abstract art film. Like, in yeah, the way at least sequences are constructed. Uh, it, it's such a such a uh, difficult thing to like glean any kind of intention behind why some of these scenes are even in the film. See, that's the thing. It leaves you guessing. Like I, I interpreted it as um, extension of his uh, feelings of inadequacy, right? Like he, where he's seeing all these, these buff dudes dancing around and these women are just throwing themselves at them. And then like later on, when we finally do get to the female nudity and how I said, like every girl in this college is like uh, a plus plus supermodel, Right. It almost it almost feels like again that kind of his his desperation and just the fact he's such a loser with women that any woman he sees becomes a hyper extended you know version of what they really are like uh, he's almost every woman he sees is like this fantasy version of, right uh, you know of, of a woman because. Uh, he's just he's just so pained and blue balled at this point, it, you know. It, it would be amazing to see like a, a more serious, a quote unquote, serious version of this. That's actually sort of a um, like. A, are you familiar with the uh, name Anders Brevik? Um, he's the um, he's the uh, misogynist dick bag who uh, shot up a bunch of uh, youth camps oh, uh, years ago. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, and I I was kind of watching this film. I was sort of seeing like, well a Travis Bickle style, like look into the psyche of like a character like this, of a man who feels like he can't get with women who probably in reality could have gotten with many women, but feels like he can't. And, uh, you know, his descent into, uh, into madness that leads to violence could actually be a really fascinating, like modern day film. I mean, you could absolutely do that. It would be a tough nut to crack in terms of yeah. like finding a market for it. I think, um, and finding, yeah. But it was kind of fascinating. Like the the 
the ideas in this film or the things that this film made me think about are much deeper than the film itself. Yeah. Um, ironically enough, which gets us to, I, I think we're, we're wrapping up or I'm not trying to force you to, to end mm. the podcast or anything, but getting towards the ending of the film, which is sort of, I mean, if you're saying that the black and white scene um, kind of uh, presages clerks that, that Kevin Smith ripped that off, I think the the final you know kind of third the final twenty minutes or whatever where the uh, where Ponda's working on the kind of love potion ripped off by love potion number nine which is <laughs> a uh, I don't know if you've seen that film was that um, Sandra Bullock in that Sandra Bullock before yeah. she was famous uh, and uh, that's absolutely I mean if you want to talk about date rape the movie that is what <laughs> love potion number nine is like that is, it is straight up we made this thing and we can uh, just fuck everybody sort of thing. So it's uh, Sandra Bullock and I forget the name of the other guy, but it, they, they, um, they yeah. basically, they, they make this sort of love potion that when you speak, like if you take the potion and then you, the opposite sex hears your voice, they are immediately attracted to you. But yeah. if someone of the same sex hears your voice, they are immediately, um, they're hostile towards you. Yeah. So um, in this sort of like psych bullshit, you know, Evo psych, you know, kind of thing, you know, they, they make up some explanation for it, but, but that film very much has, I mean, it even has like the hero with this drug goes to the, the sorority house sequence, you know, Mm -hmm. like it's, it's it's virtually um, love potion number nine. I mean, the first third of that film is kind of the same structure as the last third of Mm -hmm. this film in a lot of ways. Yeah. Um, Cause uh, he, he, um, he divide, he just all the different variations of his little, aphrodisiac experiments he mixes them all together in one thing gets some on him and finds out hey some sort of reaction with it on his skin caused probably pheromones or something like that if you really yeah, want to go it, into it, it right yeah there, there's no there's no chemical reaction that does this in real yeah. life this is, this is not the way chemistry actually works just to let you know <laughs> uh, yeah. I, I am a trained chemist i mean i could you know um Let's not even talk about the lab safety violations. Let's talk about <laughs> waste disposal here, okay? Like, you can't actually dispose of chemical waste. <laughs> like, you know, don't just let a janitor just pour it down a sink. That's just not the way. I think even in Canada, they don't let that happen. You know, Probably maybe not. Maybe in China. Maybe we're, in China. But, you know. We're pretty, um, we're pretty backwards, but we're not yeah. that bad. So Pondo gets this stuff on his skin. And he finds himself irresistible to women who, you know, previously wouldn't have even looked at him twice. And then the the, five, the, the last like twenty minutes kind of show kind of what that means. shows. It shows him getting fucked to death, basically. Right. Essentially, it, yeah. <laughs> and I don't know if you picked up on this or not, but it's almost implied that part of the reason this happens is because he sold his soul to the devil. Because there's this blonde woman that shows up who's basically following him. And it's implied that she's maybe a demon or the devil or something like that. And at one point he says, I'd sell my soul to get laid or whatever. He says and, it a couple of times in the film, yeah. which, you know, is, is one of those, like, the tagline for the film, like the, the kind of, you know, the, you know, the way that this film was sold is all about, oh, he makes this love potion. Mm. And yeah, that's only the last. But, but really the structure of the film is this guy wants to sell his soul to the devil in order to get laid. So again, it feels like there's just this disjointed set of ideas that mm-hmm. just kind of edited together into. Yeah, I mean the 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 uh, the devil girl plot really never goes anywhere. Yeah, um, which is which is I mean, again, that would be a a, a more kind of traditionally structured film 
maybe not a better film. I think that, I mean, it's, it's fascinating how much we can talk about stuff in this film just because of how incompetent it seems. Like, yeah. <laughs> how, like it's both sort of brilliant and sort of completely incompetent. It makes it sort of fascinating to talk about. That's why I suggested it to you. Cause as like, I was telling you, it's like this, I, I think I, when I first suggested, I just pointed well, this weird film. I, I have no idea if it's really good or if it's really bad. And I just, right. I, I want you to watch it and talk to you about it because I, 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 I just got it. Like I, I bought a four pack of uh, films like weekend the Bernie's on it and uh, hot dog, the movie and stuff like that. And it just happened to be packaged with it. And I watched it and I was like, what the fuck is this? <laughs> I got no idea. Like what the hell is going on? Yeah, and, definitely. definitely uh, I mean, you know, again, I would love to see a uh, you know somebody like interview some of these guys and just add, like what was going through you guys' heads when you're making this thing. Yeah, uh, just a little piece of uh, when we because I think you and I both have started doing the like when we find these obscure films to go and look through the credits of all the uh, the kind of the named people in the movie mm-hmm. and see. Uh, the woman at the beginning who is uh, the other half of the Cyrano de Bergerac uh, story, born at Shangston, and I guess she's supposed to be Eastern European or, or something. That woman is a working Foley artist. Oh, yeah? Yeah, she has like literally hundreds of credits <laughs> as, a, as a Foley artist. Like, she's that's what she does for a living. I, by all, by all intents, by, by anything that you can imagine, you know, it, it's sort of like one of those, like, well. You go like that. That's yeah. pretty awesome. That she, you know, that's what she does. It's it's pretty cool. Which again, kind of makes me think like these are all film students who are just kind of working to do, you know, like and this is just sort of they're all kind of got together. They made this silly movie and nobody really knew what they were doing. You know. Yeah. Well, you 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 saw that a lot on like low budget and especially independent stuff of this era, where especially like with Robert uh, Roger Corman films of this era. Which we're um, going to talk about some next week, I think. You know, hmm. uh, Roger Corman would hire in writers and stuff like that for films, and he'd be at the same time he'd be trying to pitch to them: Would you like to act in the film as well? Would you like to do this in the film as well? Um, a good example is like Rock, Rock and Roll High School, where they brought in some writers and they got them to play parts in the film as well, and probably for free because <laughs> right, uh, yeah, because yeah. Ro- Roger Corman is a noted cheapskate. Um, but that's where you'd see these credits pop up on Internet Movie Database where uh, this person acted in maybe two films, but the rest of their career is Foley artist or, you know, right. uh, producer or whatever, because that's what they really wanted to do. Well, like and the they, two porn star guys, I fully expected them to have, you know, like that they would be like, like, oh, that's the director and his buddy or that's like, mm-hmm. you know, but they apparently are apparently just people who were writer who were actors they had they had this one role i mean i don't think either of them went out to do anything else and i'm like this i mean again it's kind of fascinating how like this sort of this film sort of exists in this little bubble where Mm. lots of clearly some talented people were involved in making it it's not really a good film no fascinating regardless that's the thing it's it's sort of uh i guess a sort of a curio or whatever of of the period like just just uh, and I'll, I, the only other thing I really want to mention about it is um, I love the soundtrack. It's this sort of uh, new wave punk rock soundtrack of the sort of the time. Uh, most of the songs are from one of my favorite bands, the Buzzcocks, and it's a perfect pairing for this film because the film is about sexual frustration and the Buzzcocks, their entire discography is about sexual frustration. So, yeah. <laughs> 
No, no, definitely. And uh, there are so many uh, great songs in the soundtrack. Mm-hmm. I'm sure you can find a, a great one to uh, to go out on. I, I didn't yeah. even pick one. I just knew like pretty much anything from the soundtrack would be a great uh, song to go out on. I think. Yeah, I think I'll do. I think I'll do the like the the key song there. The uh, Why Can't I Touch It uh, by the Buzzcocks there. So. Yeah, that'll be that'll be the, the the way to go out. Um, so we can wrap this episode up now. Uh, again, send in your comments, uh, questions, whatever. You'll get all the information of where to go, where to find us, and send all this stuff in. Again, I remind you, you want to send us movie guide stuff. You can tweet it to Daniel and me separately, and we can just throw it at each other without knowing what we're gonna get, which would be really fun. If you guys want to do that, we'd be really up for that. Daniel, tell us about your Doctor Who podcast. Sure, I have a uh, Doctor Who podcast. If you like listening to me talk about ladies in uh, skimpy clothing, uh, Shane and I, my, my wife Shane and I, who I mentioned a couple times on this podcast, uh, we do a Doctor Who podcast. Uh, we do a classic and new series, but we're kind of going through classic series companions. And if you don't know what that means, it's probably because you're not a Doctor Who fan, or you're not interested anyway. But um, if you're interested in ladies in skimpy clothes, we are uh, talking about Leela uh, for the next couple of weeks, So, um, who is uh, an amazing character. Uh, with uh, some really interesting uh, feminist bona fides, who is nonetheless wearing uh, basically a, a leather leotard for the mm-hmm. entire uh, for her year and a half she was on the show. Uh, we're going to cover a couple more of her stories and uh, uh, talk a lot about her. So uh, definitely worth uh, checking out both Leela's stories if you uh, if you if you want to check that out. But uh, you can come and listen to us talk about them, uh, and that's at oispaceman.lipson.com. That's oispaceman. All one word dot and I'm sure the link is on the website. So you yes, it is. Yeah. And I I thoroughly recommend it. It's an excellent podcast. Um, and yeah, uh, we'll go out uh, on that Buzzcock song. Uh, I'll stick it in there. And um, yeah, thank you everyone for uh, listening. Uh, thank you Daniel for returning. Uh, been a, been a little while, so I sort of missed having someone to actually talk to instead of just talking to myself on this damn thing. And uh, I, I told you, I told you this privately, but I, I was really wanting to say this in the in the actual show. Um, I really think that you don't need us. I think that the uh, the intermission shows are actually uh, way more entertaining than listening to my voice. So. Um, uh... I think you did fine. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I'm I'm okay with them, but uh, I'd rather have someone to talk to because it's just not fun if I'm just doing it by myself. Um, and yeah, we're gonna kick out here. I think uh, the next uh, show in the sex comedy series is gonna be Not of This Earth and Ghoulies Go to College, Ghoulies Three. Uh, hopefully we'll be doing that next week if plans come to fruition. And between that, we're going to have a little special uh, tribute episode to uh, Sir Christopher Lee, who just passed away. And, um, yeah, so look forward to that, guys. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you later. Bye-bye. Bye.
Thank you for listening to They Must Be Destroyed on Sight. For our other episodes, links to Daniel, Paul, and Lee's other stuff, and links to some great podcasts of similar interest, visit us at tmbdos.podbean.com. There you can leave us comments on the site or directly email us. We listen and respond to everything. Thank you. Drive through.